Hello everyone, it's February 20th, 2024. So the Nova Sea lander, next up in the 2024 lunar armada, is on its way to the moon. It had a few hiccups, but Intuitive Machines has risen to the challenge and fixed those issues. So let's discuss them. It's a lunar lander episode this week, and there will be more, and liftoff! Welcome to episode 447 of the Open Up Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So, uh, David, you don't wear glasses, do you? I have glasses. I don't really wear them too often. I just need them for like driving at night. That's about it. Okay. Um, but otherwise, no. Hmm. But Dennis, you you wear glasses. I, I do, yes. How, how bad's your prescription? I don't know. But it's, I mean, I know my vision <laughs> is, you know, 20 and then like a couple hundred or something. So, yeah. Okay. So, so my vision is, is really bad and I've got really bad astigmatism, like plus four astigmatism. I actually think one of my eyes is above four. Uh, that's the cylinder measurement. Like it's, I've got really, really bad eyesight. And, um, the last time I went to go get glasses a year ago, my appointment was really rushed and, the prescription that I walked out with, I'm pretty sure was the wrong prescription. Um, I think my, uh, my optometrist w- was rushing to try to get to the next appointment and didn't take enough time with me and wrote me a prescription that was close ish, but bad. And I think it was particularly bad in one eye and the other eye was pretty much fine. So anyway, I went and got new glasses this week, uh, a new prescription, new glasses. And oh my God. I feel so much better. My vision was so bad that I was like having to zoom in any window on my computer that I actually wanted to read with my glasses on. And I was like getting kind of depressed about like, oh, well, I guess, you know, uh, my vision is slowly going and, you know, I'm not going to have, you know, what qualifies as passable vision for the rest of my life. Like maybe I'm going to have to stop driving in a couple of years, you know, who knows? Uh, but no, it was just, I had really, really bad, a really badly matched prescription for a year. And it, it's not really, and, uh, you know, anything that's that super interesting, but let me tell you this week, I have felt so much better about everything in my life because there's, you know, one fewer, uh, stressor on, mm-hmm. Every single thing I do every day, all day long. Feels really good. (laughs) I can imagine. That was interesting. I suppose one space-related thing to add to that is I guess you wouldn't want to go to space, or that's one more reason why maybe you wouldn't want to, because apparently that makes your eyesight worse, Mm. uh, being in zero G. Oh, it makes makes your eyesight change. Oh, so it could make it better in your case, right? Uh, Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if it made my vision better. I don't know. But like the reason that happens is because – Right. All the fluids in your body are normally pulled down to your feet. And in space, it's almost as if it's being pulled up to your head, even though it's really just an equal, there's no gradient, no pressure gradient through your body. And so the, um, the vitreous humor, the goop inside your eyes, that, that interocular pressure goes up. And so it deforms your eyeball. It changes the shape of your eyeball. And so like astigmatism, is a non-spherical eye. So maybe with higher interocular pressure, my eye would round out, but maybe it would also just bulge more in the, in the football long axis and just make things worse. Yeah. (laughs) 
the news, the IM-1 mission, I guess this is an update, right? So uh, things are going well. We talked about the launch of it. Was it last week that it launched, right? So IM-1 launched on the 15th. It was actually supposed to, f- to launch on the 14th. That's what we, we had announced. Um, but they had to delay uh, by 24 hours, and I will talk about why in a second. So this was the 300th Falcon 9 mission, They, I believe. I think when they got delayed they got bumped into the 300th mission slot because two other missions went in front of them. Well, that's cool. I mean, it's insane that you can delay by 24 hours and two other missions can fly before you do. (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah. So this Falcon 9, the booster was B-1016, and this was its 18th flight, and it did land and get recovered. B-1060, I think you meant to say. Did I say 1016? Yeah. Yeah, 1060. You're right. Um, Okay, so before we go any farther, let's do a little bit of nomenclature review. There are three different things you could call this mission. I am one is the name of the mission. Nova C is the name of the lander. So like this is the first Nova C in the future. Hopefully there will be a second Nova C. And then this particular vehicle is named Odysseus. Uh, so it's like mission, vehicle class, and then vehicle. I am one Nova C Odysseus. And Nova C is notable for uh, the fact that it is a methalox lander. It, it actually uses uh, methane and liquid oxygen. In order to be able to launch a vehicle like this, um, SpaceX had to add additional uh, propellant loading connections to their transporter erector so that they could actually get those propellant lines way up high at the, at the fairing. And they also had to modify their fairing. It's kind of funny because we were talking about modified fairings last week and we totally missed this one coming up. And they actually did two wet dress rehearsals to test this late propellant loading uh, technique and and equipment. Uh, They started loading uh, their methane and liquid oxygen into the payload at T minus two and a half hours. And that's actually what caused the delay. They detected off nominal uh, methane temperatures, but this was prior to beginning the load. So they, I, I guess, whatever they they must have fairly small methane tanks, maybe even mounted up in the transport erector. But you know, at least there's plumbing up into the TE, and um, they detected probably too warm methane uh, before they. It wasn't like they started loading up in the vehicle, even like they knew ahead of time. Nope, this ain't going to do it. So they were able to push off the launch by 24 hours. Uh, Methalox is not the only propellant system on board. It also has RCS thrusters that run off of pressurized helium. So those are cold gas reaction control system or attitude thrusters. Uh, This is not a unified Methalox uh, system, which, you know, a couple of people have looked at and, you know, not, I don't even think uh, Starship at this point is, is ready to do Methalox RCS. So uh, the vehicle has launched. It is on its way to the moon. So far, they have had a good couple of issues to solve. First off, when they separated from the upper stage, um, their navigation computer said, hey, this star tracker is out of whack. I'm going to ignore it. The issue was that some of the the way that they had calibrated on the ground didn't match exactly with what the star tracker saw in space. Um, I really tried to figure out exactly what calibration parameter was wrong. It's called numeric 
numeric conditioning is what it's called. Their numeric conditioning numbers were off. They expected one in a thousand and they were getting like two or three in a thousand. I have no idea what that means. I think so. So the, the calibrations that you do are basically to map specific pixels to uh, an angle coming out of the vehicle, right? So, you, you know, when you see a light in this part of the picture, that's a star in this direction. Um, and because it's, you know, something in a thousand, I'm assuming it's certainty tolerances where they're saying, you know, we, we need to be very certain or slightly less certain. Um, and I guess they, they had that dialed up too much, but I couldn't find exactly what part of the math uh, numeric conditioning comes from. But either way, what they did was the vehicle was already rotating around its long axis. So they just listened to the telemetry and watched the uh, power curve go up and down. And they looked at one of the high spots and grabbed basically a freeze frame of the attitude, not the absolute attitude, but like the blind reckoning. Here's where the spacecraft thinks it's pointing attitude and then told the nav system, just keep this heading. Doesn't matter what it actually is or where earth actually is. Just keep the heading where you've got the most power. And that bought them enough time uh, to go ahead and write and upload, write, test and upload a patch uh, that adjusted uh, how that one bit of the calibration worked. They said that the numbers that they were getting in space were still within their acceptable range. It just, they had dialed things in a little too closely on the ground. Then the, the next big issue, um, they have a commissioning burn for the vehicle. So th- this is really neat. They've got this uh, cryogenic engine and they can't just send it up and then hope that it works, right? They actually want to do a burn with the engine to verify that it works. And so they have a commissioning burn that's built into the sequence. Um, you've got TCM's trajectory correction maneuvers that you're going to do if something goes wrong or if your burns aren't quite perfect, you get a chance to correct that. But here they actually built in error. They said, you know, they asked SpaceX to basically send them to the slightly wrong location in space so that they could correct that with a, you know, basically a known TCM that they're going to have to do. And that could be their commissioning burn for the engine. And then they would have, you know, one, two or three TCMs ready to go, depending on how the trajectory looked um, going through the mission. And this uh, commissioning burn was scheduled and they wind, they wound up having to delay that burn. So this is another, you know, things in space look different than things on the ground and their O2 feed line. Uh, they need it to cool down to a certain temperature so they don't uh, wind up boiling off oxygen or de-densifying their oxygen. Uh, you know, boil off would be the worst thing if you've got, uh, gaseous oxygen going to the engine. So they, you know, they say, okay, we're going to bring the feed lines down to a certain point and we're, you know, going to have to dump some oxygen and methane overboard during that chill down period, but that's okay. We would rather have everything nice and cold and ready to go when we start up the engine. So we don't wind up having uh, gas ingestion and potentially uh, engine explodey. So their chill down took longer in the oxygen line than they thought. And I don't know how they determined this. I suspect that they started their commissioning burn uh, prep sequence and saw those numbers not going down as quickly as they, 
expected. So they shut everything down and went to go do some work. But the fix for this is they have to update their burn timeline, say, okay, we need to get ready sooner so that we have time to cool down. Um, but they also said they increased the onboard event sequence timer. Um, I don't know if this is just the implementation side of changing that timeline or if it's something more interesting. Uh, but that's the phrase that they used in their, in their press release. So they, they increased the onboard event timer, uh, onboard event sequence timer. So, uh, once they did this delay, put up the fix, they're able to do their commissioning burn successfully. The commissioning burn uh, starts out with a 100% throttle burn, pushing as hard as they can. And then at some point, they throttle the engine down to test the throttle down during their landing sequence. So I don't know how deep their engine can throttle, uh, but you know it's it's cool to see them pretending as if they're landing when they've only just like they literally haven't even finished commissioning the engine. I don't know. It's just kind of a cool uh, synergy to, to build into the mission. So with this commissioning burn, Odysseus set some really cool firsts. This was the first vehicle to fire a cryogenic engine in deep space. That's never happened before. That's pretty cool. Um, this is also, uh, the first planetary science mission to use a methalox engine, um, which is surprising and not surprising at the same time, right? Like we know that we haven't really used methalox very much at all. And it's also really surprising because like methalox makes a lot of sense on paper, but of course, you know, it's really tough to do cryogenics. So in the case of intuitive machines, uh, they have trade-offs when they're doing this, they are going to lose fuel at a constant, not a constant rate. They're going to consistently lose fuel as long as they are not hooked up to the fuel source on the launch pad. Part of that means that they have to get to the moon and land within a certain period of time. They have a, a fairly short expiration date. That means that they have to spend a lot of fuel getting to the moon. They have to go straight there. They can't do any of these, you know, interesting keyhole, weak boundary, uh, float around in deep space for a while. And then, oh, suddenly here's the moon kind of things. But that trade-off is okay because uh, cryogenic fuel sources are so energy dense and the engines are, are, you know, efficient and high thrust and everything. It's really not that big of a deal to burn hard and go straight to the moon. And so like all these trade-offs, they're all choices that you have to make. And it's really good to see the other major branch, uh, because we've explored, uh, hypergolics and monopropellants a lot going to the moon and going to, uh, uh, other planetary systems. It's really cool to see that other big branch. We're finally there. We're finally able to test it. It is kind of refreshing to have one of these lunar missions where they're not like, Hey, and, and it launched and, uh, it'll get to the moon in three months. It's, uh, right. <laughs> it's refreshing to not have that this time. <laughs> I'm kind of shocked that, that this is the first cryogenic engine for fire in, in deep space. I guess that means, you know, beyond, uh, Earth's trajectory, but so there was nothing during the Apollo. I guess none of those engines. Because we got cryogenic upper stages, but I guess yeah, not not once they yeah, I guess they start heading to the moon. Go figure. <laughs> and then one thing, actually, I also wanted to bring up at the very top there. You mentioned that it flew on what was the 18th flight of uh, that one booster 1060, and I thought that was kind of surprising. First of all, I didn't know we were up to 18. I thought it was still like 16 or something. But um, there's two other boosters that are tied for 18, and I'm kind of surprised that it would be this kind of a 
mission, you know, like not a Starlink, but you're flying this for the 18th time and you put this on there. I mean, I guess that speaks to how confident they are about the reusability of uh, uh, these boosters at this point. That, that is cool. But I think it's even cooler that they recovered this booster. They sent a payload to the moon and they can still recover. <laughs> yeah. How about that? <laughs> and it's the and it's the oldest active booster as well. Oh, is it? Okay. Okay. So coming up for the mission. This, like I said, this is a fast uh TLO translunar orbit. And so they're they're basically doing the Apollo transfer where they um are gonna arrive at the moon's altitude before the moon gets there. And then the moon is going to sweep them up as they go past. So they will do their, uh, their injection burn on the far side of the moon. Um, they should be getting to lunar orbit on February 21st. That is before our next episode. Like, like you said, Dennis, it's mm. fast. Um, they're going to spend about 24 hours orbiting the moon. They're going to enter um, a hundred kilometer orbit. I believe they're entering one orbit and staying in that orbit until they land. I don't think that they're doing uh, two different orbital altitudes, but they're going to aim to orbit the moon 12 times. And these, the orbital period uh, at a hundred kilometers is about two hours. So it's about 24 hours of orbiting the moon before they go for their landing attempt. The landing, uh, therefore, is scheduled the next day, Thursday, February 22nd. Um, I really hope there's going to be a live feed for this. I haven't really gone looking for it. I can't imagine there's not going to be one. It's a private company on their first mission. They're going to be really excited. And the landing is um, not super surprising. Uh, not to say that it's not interesting, but like it's exactly what you think. So they're doing a continuous landing burn. So that's known to Kerbal Space programmers as a gravity turn. Uh, they will uh, light their engine up and not shut it down until they are on the surface. That is compared to doing a deorbit burn and then multiple burns along the way, uh, or a deorbit burn and a single landing burn, uh, or uh, you know they're not going to be doing any hover stops. Uh, like, uh, what was the last lander? Slim was doing that. Yeah. Slim. Yeah. There you go. So they're going to, uh, burn, uh, all the way down. They're going to start that burn sideways, right? And they're going to slowly tip up as they go down. They expect to hit their landing attitude. So pointing, uh, vertical at about 30 meters above the ground. Um, during the high side of the burn, they're going to be doing terrain relative navigation. Um, once they get down to that 30 meter area, um, they will switch to optical hazard detection and avoidance. And then as they're landing, they're going to have to switch from optical uh, orientation to dead reckoning using the IMU, the inertial measurement unit. And the reason is that their cameras are going to be blinded by dust, or at least they assume they will be. So they're just going to start ignoring those cameras at about 10 meters above the ground. They are landing uh, at Malapert A. Uh, it's a crater. It's about 300 kilometers from the South Pole. It's pretty close to Malapert Massif, which is actually an Apollo 3 land. Apollo 3, an Artemis 3 uh, landing site candidate. The vehicle has no intent to survive the lunar night. Maybe they will, but in all likelihood, they're going to be there uh, for half of the month, and then they're going to run out of sunlight, and they're going to be done. Um, there are some pretty cool payloads on board. I believe there are 12 in total. 
Um, I'm going to save the one that is most interesting to me for last. And I'm going to start with the one that is least interesting. So the least interesting payload is uh, an artwork by Jeff Koons. And I feel bad judging art and saying bad things about art. I think that art is so personal and so expressive that in the same way that you wouldn't nitpick somebody's a a non-artistic expression of somebody's beliefs. You, you shouldn't nitpick their art either, but boy, Jeff Koons is not my favorite artist. He's a pop artist. He's famous for sculptures that look like balloon animals in particular, very highly reflective and polished, like metal looking balloon animals. It's, in my opinion, is dribble. It just, there's no real meaning to it. It looks nice. It'd be fun to see in a hotel lobby, but like, it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, like for God's sake, Andy Warhol, he is like the father of pop art and people hate him for it, but at least he was like making mass manufactured art as a way to comment on the mass manufacturing and consumption culture of America. He didn't do a particularly good job of it. He got rich off of it, which is, you know, not a great thing to be doing. Like he he wasn't a great person, but at least, you know, his art had a message and looked new and interesting. I, I just, I'm not a huge fan of, of Koons's work, but here's the thing. If you were sending art to the moon, what would you send? And conversely, what's the one thing you wouldn't send to the moon? And I would argue that the one thing you wouldn't send to the moon is a moon. Uh, and that, <laughs> This mission on board has 125, like one inch models of the moon. And the, the concept is kind of cool. Like I would want to have this on my desk. Maybe Um, it's a cube of 125 sculptures and they are shaded to represent the different phases of the moon. That's, that's kind of cool. Like I want to look at that. Okay, cool. But to send them to the moon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Come on. Yeah, that that's a lot of that it looks like a lot of mass. I mean, and for putting something for putting anything on the moon, I think it probably is. I don't know how light that is. Yeah, but Jeff Koons is rich and can pay to send things to the moon apparently. And you know, NASA paid for six payloads, um private companies and universities paid for another six. I don't know if there was, you know, a seventh, but at least this thing doesn't take up any power. It doesn't have any heating requirements. It's just dead mass that you throw up there. So it's like, okay, it is big. It's not that big, you know? Eh, okay. Just, just passive littering. Mm-hmm. That's all. Well, yeah. I mean, like <laughs> I, they're not going to eject them from the vehicle, which, <laughs> you know, I, I like scattered art. Like I like the, uh, the, the Soviet, uh, medallions that, that mm. smashed into the moon surface. Like it's littering. It's not great, but like, I kind, I kind of like the idea of like, you know, distributing a bunch of little tiny things, but they're not doing that. And honestly, I think it's a good idea in this case. I, I would be more annoyed if they're going to scatter these things. But like I, I showed my, <laughs> I showed my partner a photo of this thing. And <laughs> she goes like, if an alien lands on the moon and sees this, <laughs> and I was like, I know she's like, it's going to look like the, the, the aliens might think that the moon can like reproduce asexually. <laughs> and these are like little buds that are going to grow and, and become, an, it just really irks me. Okay. Happier things. Another payload is Rosales. It's a radio antenna, which is or a, a radio telescope, which is pretty darn neat. There's a payload called scalps. 
which does stereo lithography models um, so that they can actually model surface erosion due to the engine plume on the surface. So there are four cameras, two, two stereo pairs that can look at the surface and map just how much excavation happened uh, due to this landing. I think that's that's pretty darn neat, especially as uh, an informational thing if we're going to go to the moon more often. There is uh, a payload called the Radio Frequency Mass Gauge. This is really cool. Um, it is a fancy fuel level detector. So on Earth, it's pretty easy to detect how much fuel you have just by looking at how high up in the in the fuel cell it rises, in the fuel tank it, it rises. But on the moon, you know, the gravity is low enough that surface tension coats almost every surface with fuel inside your tank. Um, and so I don't know how this actually works, but apparently they're using radio waves. Uh, Chris in the chat suggests maybe it's a capacitance type detector. Yeah, maybe, although I don't know how a radio emitter would, would play into that, but you know, maybe you're, you're using it as your, your power source and you can, I don't know. Cause that, that wouldn't be capacitance really. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, hopefully we'll get to talk more about that in the future. Cause that's really cool. And then the, the last payload I want to talk about, and this one is my absolute favorite. It is a payload from Embry-Riddle University. Um, it's called Eagle Cam. And Eagle Cam is, I believe, a 1U CubeSat. And not unlike Slim, uh, this payload is going to get deployed while the vehicle is still coming in for its terminal landing sequence. So they're going to uh, eject it at around 30 meters. I'm assuming once they get into their upright condition and they're beginning to look at landing instead of just slowing down. As soon as they're there, they're going to pop this thing out the side. And uh, Eagle Cam is actually a free flyer. It's intended to do its science before it hits the ground. I just love this. And so they're going to capture video of the lander as it's landing. And this will be the first third person video of a lunar landing taking place. I, I think that the outreach is going to be so good for this uh, because it's so hard to envision things that are happening in space. And, you know, renders are nice, but they don't have the same gut punch, like that visceral, oh my God, I know what this is. Like I can see a spaceship landing on the moon. And also I think it's, I think it's going to be really cool for intuitive machines to get video of their landing happening. Like if Slim had had something like this, we would have had so much more information about uh, about what exactly happened, even though they can reconstruct a lot of it from telemetry, like nothing beats video sometimes. Um, and then to be able to visualize that plume as it lands, we have launch plumes from Apollo, um, really fantastic launch footage from Apollo, uh, but, but no third person uh, landing footage. I'm really, really psyched about this. Um, it is a student uh, team and if you go to their website, they've got a short video with some like assembly footage from the lab. Uh, and they say that uh, Intuitive Machines challenged them to get this video. And here's the thing. Intuitive Machines didn't. It was actually a uh, an alum of Embry-Riddle who came back to the to the college and said, hey, I'll pay you a bunch of money. Like I'll pay your way if you can design 
uh, a payload that can take video of this landing. And I just love that. Like, if you're going to be rich, if you're going to give money to a university, like freaking commission students to build a really cool payload that's going to mean. I just, I love it. Yeah. Uh, student space stuff is just fascinating to me. Um, they get, they get to do a lot of really cool stuff these days. Me and my biology undergraduate degree are, uh, are very jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just do two short and sweets this week. Dennis, what is the first? H3 completes first successful launch. After failing to reach orbit on its initial attempt, JAX's H3 has now notched its first successful flight. The upper stage performed two burns, placing several payloads, including a mass simulator, into two different orbits. It was unclear if one of the secondary payloads, a CubeSat, had actually deployed. Designed to be significantly cheaper than the H-2A rocket, the H-3 is considered an important element to JAX's future plans in space. Then, next up, Voyager 1 still struggles to communicate. After several months since their last communication with Voyager 1, mission scientists are preparing to say goodbye to the 46-year-old spacecraft. While the vehicle's flight data subsystem has been unable to send useful data back to Earth, the spacecraft is still capable of science, a situation mission scientists refer to as sad and frustrating. Attempts to fix the glitch will continue, although the team highlights that even if the Voyager 1 mission ends, Voyager 2 is still going strong. So I guess that's good. Yeah. Although that's going to be a biggie, yeah, 46 like and a half years. And we might be we might be finally seeing the end of yeah. Yeah. Voyager 1. That's like a monument. That's like the yes. Eiffel Tower going away or something. <laughs> Eiffel Towers in space. There we go. All right. So let's move along to this week in spaceflight history. Uh, we have five winners. We have Chris S. the Greek, Dennis O., and Psykyle. And the clue was – oh, and, I, and I'm just giving everyone the bonus points since I think that – I think it was a pretty straightforward clue. So the clue was – and it's picked off at the 380,000-yard line. And that is a – football reference, which I don't know much about football, but Dennis and Ben know more than me. So they helped me with this clue. So thank you. Yeah. D Dennis, Dennis got this one. <laughs> don't, don't attribute to me anything that I didn't actually do. Oh no. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I seem to remember you knew more about some of the details than I did. <laughs> I'm really good at faking like I understand football, uh, but I don't. I, I roomed with somebody for two years in college who was a huge college football fan, and that's basically the extent of my knowledge. <laughs> so this week's event is the 21st of February 2008, and it was the interception and destruction of USA-193, um, which is also known as uh, the Enrol-21 spy satellite. We'll just say that. We don't know exactly what it did. I guess we, could, we would also say that this event is known as Operation Burnt Frost. That's one of those, what would you call that? Like a government top secret kind of a thing? Not really top secret. Oh, kind of, kind of like how they have uh, code words, essentially. Yeah, like, yeah it's, um, it's like a code name, I guess. I, I guess it's just a code name. Or something like, yeah. 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 But I don't think Burnt Frost is actually uh, like, it's not really a code word. I think it was just kind of, you know, they want to give a generic, just kind of like, yeah, like um, other examples of it. But like when we invaded Panama, whatever that operation was called, that was just random words too. Yeah, the the really secret ones, they actually have like, a code name generator and they don't get it like they, they pre code that like they generate them ahead of time. And they've got like a stack of slips of paper that are all the code names that we're allowed to use. And they just pick them off of the stack one at a time when they need them. Yeah. So I, I didn't bother looking up trying to find much information on this satellite since I figured that would be classified, <laughs> but um, it is thought to be, part of a program called uh, the Future Imagery Architecture, which is something that is still going today. And this was 
basically a program to reduce the costs of these types of satellites for the Department of Defense. It kind of had mixed results. The synthetic aperture radar uh, segment of that program was not successful, but there are other parts that were. And this is thought to be a synthetic aperture radar satellite. So it was meant uh, for taking Earth observations. And I don't know if there's much more that we know about it than that. But actually, there are a few other details. Yeah, this was uh, launched in uh, December of 2006 from Vandenberg, and it was launched on a Delta II. And one interesting fact, which I guess maybe is a different This Week in Spaceflight History, is that this was the very first ULA launch. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of cool. So when that became you know, an entity, uh, this was their very first payload. And like I said, the purpose of this is classified, but what we do know is that it had um, a 5,000-pound wet mass, and approximately 1,000 pounds of that was hydrazine propellant, and that's important to keep in mind. So, yeah, lots of reaction mass here. The orbit did change, and there is no official data on exactly what the orbit was, but there are people on the ground uh, who can, you know, make these observations. Um, it looks like it was in a 353-by-380-kilometer orbit with an inclination of 58.5 degrees. And that did change um, the orbit. I don't think the inclination did, or if it did, it was it was not by very much. Um, but you know that was more or less the, the orbit that it was in. And this is much like a series of satellites that are known as Lacrosse. They've been renamed since then. I think they're called like the Onyx constellation. But these are also synthetic aperture radar satellites, and they're in a very similar orbit. So it's thought that that is, or that's the reason why we think that this is probably something like that. But this particular satellite, when it was launched. Uh, Ground control had lost contact with it just hours after the launch. We think that maybe it was due to a piece of debris of some sort striking the spacecraft. There's no official word, I think, on exactly what caused this to happen, which again is not surprising. This all happened in 2006. And then by late January of 2008, so several years later, the orbital decay rate was starting to actually increase. And I guess the question is why intercept this satellite uh, since, you know, satellite orbits happen all the time. So why have to take this thing out? Um, and as I said, it had approximately 1,000 pounds of hydrazine propellant. And hydrazine, as we know, is pretty toxic stuff. And it was stored in a three-foot diameter titanium tank. And apparently titanium tanks and other hardware, they do actually routinely make it back to the ground. And so the thought was that maybe this huge tank full of hydrazine might actually hit the earth. And that would be a very bad scenario, mm. at least especially if it did so over land, which there's, you know, a decent chance of that happening. There was some speculation as to whether this was an ASAT test or if there was legitimate concern that this, you know, could actually harm human beings. And from what I've been able to gather, I think that it was a, a pretty legitimate concern, or at least just like my own two cents, this is something that should have been done. And I'm very glad that they did, because it seems like there's a decent chance that this tank would have survived to the ground. And I don't know if it would just would have hit the ground and just, you know, like blown up with a bunch of hydrazine going everywhere. I don't know, but you just don't want that much hydrazine coming back because most satellites that deorbit and have hydrazine on board, they don't have much because most of them last a little bit longer, but this thing died the very first day that it was put into orbit. So it hadn't expelled any of that hydrazine. And so now you have a full tank of this toxic stuff. So yeah, makes sense to actually shoot the thing yeah. down. And actually there was a risk assessment that was done by NASA and they rated this as the highest risk for 
I guess, like doing harm of any re-entering spacecraft or rocket body. So this uh, was at the top of the list. I mean, things that have come back. Hmm. Most of that stuff um, is done in a controlled manner. And if not, it's just a small satellite that will mostly burn up and any scraps aren't going to pose much harm. But this one, I guess, just because of the hydrazine, it was thought to be way too dangerous. Was this just for NASA satellites? Because, I mean, I imagine dumping, you know, nuclear material over Canada was potentially worse than just a single or maybe not i don't know <laughs> this was not even a nasa satellite really so good question because nuclear material would be bad that's what i would think but <laughs> yeah no that's a good question i'm not sure about that but yeah so the mission burnt frost uh that is the code name or whatever. This was given the green light by George W. Bush on the 4th of January, 2008. So one question that this raises or that you might be asking yourself is why wait so long, you know, because it's going to reenter within a matter of months. And just now they're deciding to actually shoot the thing down. And no one knows, but some possible explanations are because uh, one, in 2007, the Chinese had conducted an ASAT test. And I think we all remember that one. Um, and so maybe the idea is they did it so like we can do it too. You're less likely to get blowback from say China if they just conducted an ASAT test of their own. So that might be one explanation. The other one is that maybe it just took that long to do the risk assessment. Perhaps it wasn't clear how much of a danger this posed. Although I think it, it seems pretty clear right at the outset, if you have a huge tank full of hydrazine. So <laughs> they had to act quickly. So uh, the intercept window couldn't be any sooner than the 18th of February. And this was due to the launch of the shuttle Atlantis to the ISS because uh, there were some you know, pretty serious concerns about a debris event. I mean, like obviously that could affect the shuttle. So they had to wait till it launched and came back. It was scheduled to return on the 18th of February. The satellite was predicted to reenter sometime in early March. So you have like a couple weeks. That's it. Just to add, I guess, insult to injury, the shuttle had to extend the mission by a couple of days. So it actually came back on the 20th. So that shortened the window just a little bit more. Yeah. So they had to, you know, like act quickly. So the idea, the plan that was uh, drawn up, and this was starting in, I guess, like January, they were going to use three U.S. Navy cruisers uh, they were going to launch a an anti-ballistic missile. Missile. Um, there's a better term for that. It's a military oh. term. They were going to launch a ballistic missile interceptor, uh, but instead they're going to intercept a satellite uh, because uh, the missiles that they carry on board, or at least some of them, they are designed to uh, reach these altitudes and indeed pretty close to orbital speed. The three naval carriers or cruisers rather uh, were the Lake Erie, which was the primary. So that was the one that was going to take the first shot. And if that missed, the backup would be the USS Decatur. And if that one failed, then on the following day, they would go with the USS Russell, which was actually just waiting in port, I think in Honolulu. So uh, these were all stationed just off the coast of Hawaii. And that was where they were going to do the deorbit because you're over the Pacific Ocean and you have lots of uh, room. You have lots of downrange in order for this stuff to actually re-enter and hopefully not hurt anyone. So yeah, that's the idea just to, you know, make triple sure that they can actually bring it down. And interestingly enough, if this were successful and spoiler alert, it was uh, a lot of that debris would be coming down over Canada. So I guess Canada <laughs> does not get a break um, because it was kind of tracking northwest or yeah, no, like in a northeasterly direction. Uh, so it was, uh, yeah, shot down over Hawaii and then it tracked northeast just below Alaska, like in that area. Um, and indeed, there were some university students 
students, I believe, at an observatory, and uh, they actually saw this. They were uh, looking at a total lunar eclipse, and they saw some of uh, this debris coming back. Hmm. So uh, I guess they got to see that instead. So the missile that was used, uh, that is called the SM-3, and uh, the SM stands for Standard Missile. This is what is used basically to intercept ICBMs and things of that nature, I think. Um, <laughs> at least it's certainly capable of doing so. So there were some critics of this whole mission claiming that this is really a justification for carrying out an ASAT test. And there was a defense that was given, and I think a pretty valid one, that if that were the case, exactly why would you use one of these missiles? Because they are not ideal. Luckily, the US-193 satellite, it was orbiting at a low enough altitude that it could take out that satellite. But really, it doesn't have much more of a range. And so using an SM-3 to take out a satellite uh, is not ideal. Plus, it's just uh, there, there aren't any of these located onboard ships that would be capable of doing so. They have other things to do. It's just not, you know, designed for that. Um, but it was the best thing that they had at the time. And uh, yes, yeah, so the SM-3 is capable of short to intermediate ballistic missile intercept. And it had been uh, successfully tested on mock-up warheads and test vehicles. So this is something that had been proven and it's been used since then. Um, and it's been upgraded actually too. But yeah, prior to this particular operation, um, it had been tested and, uh, you know, it had been proven successful. So I guess that's another reason why they would want to use it. And the missile has three stages and a possible fourth, which again is later on, but uh, in 2008, just a three. And they're all like solid motors. The first one is an MK-72, which is uh, the first stage booster. The second one is the MK-104, and that has a dual thrust motor. Third stage is an MK-136, and this has a solid motor. And this also carries the kinetic impactor, which is how it hits the satellite. So this thing does not blow up. It just, you know, makes a kinetic impact and that's it. Um, And I guess it said that it had a pulsed motor of some sort, but I mean, thinking about solid rocket motors and having to guide them in a very, very precise way, I find that very interesting. Um, And I would like to know more about that because it seems like, you know, once they're on, they're just going to burn. So you can really only vector the exhaust. You can't, you know, at least I don't think that you can throttle it much. Maybe you can a little bit. I mean, I suppose that is possible. You can't throttle on the spot, but you can cut the grain to have the right thrust profile you want. And can I ask a question? What is a dual thrust mean in this context? Yeah, I think that just means it's, you know, dual nozzles. Two nozzles, okay. I could be wrong, but yeah. And there was the possibility of maybe there being a glancing blow, which means that it hits the satellite, but it doesn't actually blow up the tank. So for this contingency, they had something called a consequence team. Uh, Couldn't find out much about this, but basically it was four C-17 planes and 90 people. And I'm guessing that this is just a team of people that has to go and deal with a hydrazine incident, because I don't know what other role a bunch of planes and personnel would play in uh, that scenario. So uh, that's pretty interesting. So that was their contingency plans, uh, some planes and some people. <laughs> <laughs> so I looked up dual thrust motors. So a dual thrust rocket motor, a DTRM, like it's actually a thing. And it's just what Dennis had suggested is the um, fuel grain is packed with two different uh, types or densities uh, okay. so that you start at high thrust and then you throttle down. So they, they call the the high thrust section, the the boost phase, and the low density section, the sustain phase. Interesting, hmm. cool. So it's it's like throttling with different types of fuel rather than throttling based on the uh, the fuel grain geometry. That's interesting to me because there's obviously a reason for doing so, but since this is a kinetic impactor, I wonder what 
the reason for the lower thrust, uh, like what role that plays? Yeah. So for, for like offensive weapons that are like in the atmosphere, it's to limit the amount of drag because it starts getting higher and you know, more expensive for every, you know, meter per second you add when you're going very quickly. So by limiting your speed, you get a longer range, I believe. Yeah. So yeah, like I said, the USS Lake Erie, which was stationed just north of Hawaii, they launched, they did successfully intercept at 247 kilometers. So the clue said the 380,000 yard line, that was way off. Uh, we meant to fact check that and we were wrong. So it's more like a 247,000 meter line right mm-hmm. <laughs> and so yeah uh the launch was uh so i mean i didn't want to get into a whole bunch of details about how uh u.s naval destroyers work but basically they have what's called the vls which is a vertical launch system which just looks like a grid of these individual launch compartments or launch silos and that's you know from the surface of the ship and the ship provides the tracking during ascent. So basically, it first has to, you know, like acquire the satellite. Then it provides the guidance most of the way up until the it gets to the second stage phase, at which point the vehicle is able to, you know, like actually acquire the satellite as the target. And this did actually require some modification. I had seen, at least in like the Wikipedia article, which is the first place that you read about it, it says that it was, it was a heavily modified missile. But it, as far as I can tell, it was not heavily modified. It was just the software that was updated. And that was just to make sure that it could identify a satellite because it's used to hitting missiles. So I guess it might need to be modified just to recognize that, hey, you need to hit this satellite. Don't mm. try and track missiles. But that seems to be the only modification. And I don't know how many more modifications could have been made under such short notice. Um, and I don't know how many would be necessary anyway. So yeah, I think it was just a software that was updated. But yeah, the impact was good. And you can watch videos if you want to. That's one thing that they do have. And you can see the explosion. It looks like it's not just you know a kinetic explosion, but rather they did hit the fuel tank. Oh, wow. So it was a successful mission. Uh, this created 174 pieces of trackable debris, which is, I'm sure, much or many fewer than how many were actually created. But that's, you know, what was trackable. Um, and those pieces deorbited after a few months. But there were two larger pieces that were thrown into higher orbits, or I, I guess just two pieces. I don't know if they were larger. And um, the final one did come back in late October 2009. So it took about a year and a half or so before the last bits of it came back. But overall, a successful mission. Um, and again, I think they did the right thing. And, and I don't think that there was any weird conspiracy to you know conduct an ASAP mission, although that might be perhaps, you know, a little bonus, like if you can justify it. There was some protests raised by both China and Russia. Uh, they were not happy with the operation, but I think it is justified. So that's just my two cents mm. once again. <laughs> but yeah, that's your This Week in Space Flight History. Cool. Thank you, David. Well, Ben, next week is the 27th of February to the 4th of March. Do you have a clue for us? Yes, I do. Next week in 1965, the clue is technically that was highly elliptical. Mm, okay, well, not knowing what this is, I have no idea, but I'm going to actually try to get it myself between now and next week. Well, as for everyone else, if you have a guess as to what this clue is referencing, email us at info at theorbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a toot on Macedon. Use the hashtag thisweeksf or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash discord for an invite to our discord server. Uh, type slash TWSF to hand your guests directly to Tombot. And good luck, everybody. Good luck. All right, so let's do upcoming spaceflight events. We got just four events of those, just three launches. But the first one is an event in, I, I guess, a precedent-setting event, <laughs> right, Ben? It, yeah, ish. <laughs> it, it's yeah. the opposite of a launch. Uh, so it's uh, 
Varda's um, space capsule is coming back home. Finally, they got uh, reject the FAA rejected their uh, request to land. And so they were looking at um, landing in a couple other nations and apparently they worked out uh, all their TPS issues. Um, not a, not a real space thing. That's, <laughs> that's a joke. I just want to be clear. We, we don't know exactly what uh, got them uh, approval from the FAA, but hopefully we can figure it out. Cause that'd be kind of cool, but they're going to be landing uh, sometime on February 21st. I don't think they've published a date and I don't know if they have a, a live stream that they're planning on doing, but they tweeted, Hey, we got FAA approval. Uh, so yeah, that's on the 21st. Pretty cool. And just to be clear, like when you said they worked out their, uh, TPS things, I was thinking, yeah, that could mean thermal protection systems, <laughs> right? But we're talking about the movie Office Space. <laughs> we're talking about a reference to, uh, that for anyone who hasn't seen Office Space. Oh, they, they were referencing thermal protection systems in Office Space? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. It, that could be. Maybe that's what those TPS reports were all about. <laughs> Never knew that. And then next up on Thursday, February 22nd, uh, or in reality, well, if you live in uh, the United States, uh, Wednesday night, February 21st, we have a Falcon 9 Block 5 taking Starlink Group 715 to LEO. And so this is going to be a launch out of Vandenberg at Slick 4E with a window uh, again on February uh, 22nd. Uh, from 0424 to 0846 UTC. And then after that, on the 23rd, we have the launch of a Long March 5, and that has an unknown payload uh, and details TBD. So we don't know much. Actually, it's kind of cool that we know that it's a Long March 5. Uh, launch library links to their their source link uh, is to a, a Chinese language forum where people are kind of going back and forth and they get some sort of uh, official announcement that actually corrects them to uh, it being a long March 5. But it's pretty mm. cool that we even know for certain <laughs> or for reasonable certainty what, what vehicle it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. Just um, not any details on the payload, but the launch window for that is um, starting at 1000 UTC through 1600 hours UTC. And it's uh, Launching from the Wenchang Space Launch Site in the PRC from Launch Site 101, I guess that's or I guess that's the specific launch pad. Yeah, yeah, my 101. Name. So yeah, I'm actually looking at the wiki entry. It looks like there's two launch complexes at Wenchang, and one of them, Launch Complex One, serves the Long March Fives, and then the other one does Long March Sevens and Eights. Oh, okay. And the last uh, launch that we have is a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching Starlink Group 639. Um, the NOTAM for this one is it includes all of its backup windows. So I think that they got approval to have a lot of backup windows so that they could bump this flight uh, if need be. But it doesn't look like they're going to have to. So this is flying out of uh, the Cape. Uh, and Slick 40 on Saturday, February 24th, uh, between 014 hours UTC and 0508 hours UTC. If it gets bumped back, it'll get bumped back uh, about 24 hours or a multiple of 24 hours. Um, just, just getting, uh, chunked back and back and back, but should, uh, should fly on the 24th is my guess. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. And so with that, let's do it with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jinkies and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Dennis O., Mike, Chris S., Chubby, Colin, and the Greek 
for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. And you can also visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links. Get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about. Or you can skip all of that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.